Hey there, it's Playbook Editor Mike DeBonis. Something a little different today to start the week. Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton is here for today's Playbook Daily Briefing. Okay, Zach, you are joining us from the frigid shores of Lake St. Clair in Macomb <laughs> County, Michigan. Um, Indeed. <laughs> let's talk about a place that's pro- uh, where the weather's probably a little bit better, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, this past weekend, the Republican Jewish Coalition had its annual meeting in Las Vegas at the Venetian Hotel, the house that Sheldon Adelson built. This was basically the I'm not Trump Republican primary beauty contest. We had a whole raft of potential Republican presidential candidates uh, show up and basically give various spins on the same message, which is even though Donald Trump may have entered this race earlier this week or last week, this is not fait accompli. There is going to be a uh, legit Republican primary, and, and they all sort of made their cases why they should be taken seriously. And what did you make of it, Zach? Well, it's really interesting. You know, there's this full spectrum among the prospective 2024 candidates, this spectrum of their willingness to actually talk about Trump by name. Um, You know, some of them, like Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley, sort of obliquely talked about him. You know, uh, Nikki Haley talked about the need for a new generation of leadership. And and Pompeo talked about, you know, uh, this need on Republicans' parts to start winning again um, and that we needed to move past celebrity uh, as a party and and push conservative ideas. You know, we Republicans need to do this. And then on the sort of the other end of the spectrum, you had Chris Christie, uh, who was pretty willing to take on Trump by name, uh, you know, said that, uh, just straight up said that we keep losing and losing. And the reason we're losing is because Donald Trump has put himself before everybody else. So those are the two ends of the spectrum, more or less. And one of those candidates uh, in between them uh, is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who won re-election by a very large margin earlier this month, uh, who is beginning to develop a sort of air of inevitability uh, around him as a 2024 candidate. And now all the reports uh, from this weekend said that he sort of stole the show, that he was he was the name on everyone's mind. He was who people wanted to talk about. And uh, you know, with this era of inevitability now, I think the question for him is, is he inevitable in the way that George W. Bush was inevitable heading into 2000? Or is he inevitable in the way that sort of Scott Walker was uh, heading into 2016, where he was the the big name, you know, Republican governor who had this uh, enormous amount of support from Republican fundraisers throughout the country who had a lot of buzz associated with him, but was ultimately you know, just not cut out for the rigors uh, and the particular needs of a of a campaign for president. You know, the what it takes to win in a place like New Hampshire or Iowa uh, is probably a little bit different than being governor of Florida. Um, you know, you, you have to do more retail politics. Uh, it's less uh, it's less of a campaign where you can just rely on the sort of wholesale you know, broadcast television type approach um, to, to campaigning. It's it's certainly shaping up to be the sort of Ron DeSantis show, uh, with the major exception, of course, of of Donald right. Trump. Well, you know, just to dwell on Ron DeSantis for a minute, you know, the one thing that he has that was kind of a theme of all of these candidates, which you know, you know, the sort of the the through line was that all of them 
gave some version of we have to start winning again and we can't nominate a loser. And the one thing that Ron DeSantis has that the others don't is that he just won huge, uh, winning mm-hmm. almost 60 percent in Florida. And he just absolutely reveled in that in his speech. I, I believe one phrase he said, there's no substitute for victory, um, I think was was kind of like the the, the cornerstone of, of his pitch. You know, he can very um, credibly go in front of a crowd and then go into the back rooms with the donors and say, um, you know, it's one thing for Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo or any of these people who have not faced voters any time in the last, you know, eight years to, to say that they they can win. Well, I'm winning and I'm not only winning, I'm winning in Florida, which, you know, six years ago was considered a swing state. And I'm mm-hmm. I, I just killed it. Like, you know, he he sort of not in Las Vegas, but in a in a speech earlier this month uh, after the election, he referred to a private group. He, he said that he ran up Saddam Hussein margins in some parts of Florida. <laughs> um, and th- that seems to be a, a very powerful thing that he has going for him. And, uh, I, you know, that to, to the degree that he has any special sauce, that that seems to be it. The other interesting thing is, you know, is Trump also addressed this mm-hmm. conference and uh, he did it by video stream. He did not appear in person. But, you know, the thing about Trump was it was just the same old, same old. It was the same sort of like talking points that he's always had when talking to a uh, conservative uh, Jewish audience, ran through his usual sort of ramble through his, you know, usual issues. I, you know, if you're sitting there listening to this, you know, did, did you hear anything new? Right. Well, I, that's a valid question. You probably didn't. And I, I think that was the same problem in some ways that he faced in his uh, announcement speech for president uh, this past week. Uh, at the same time, you know, these audiences of, you know, insiders and and pundits were not really on board the Trump train in, in 2016 either. Um, and it, it may very well be that there's just this disconnect where what he says uh, just does seem kind of like the same old, same old to to us. But he it, it seems to resonate with a certain segment of the Republican base. And getting to the question of will the the argument of we need to win again have salience with voters? You know, that that's a very good question. You know, the Republican Party has kind of gone back and forth in terms of whether they want to take the sort of pragmatic, winnable approach when nominating a presidential candidate. You know, there have been obvious times where that's been true, where, you know, they nominated John McCain in 2008, um, which wasn't necessarily what the conservative base wanted in that primary. But, you know, in 2016, it was not necessarily the pragmatic choice of of who uh, who the GOP establishment wanted. Certainly it wasn't with, with Donald Trump, but he was able to catch fire among Republican voters. And now I think the question is, to what extent are Republican voters kind of on the same page uh, of, of the establishment and with pundits and political observers that, you know, they they look and they see that Trump lost the popular vote in 2016. He lost it again in 2020. He lost the electoral vote in 2020, lost Congress in 2018. Democrats had a much better than expected midterm. Uh, and, you know, at some point, all of that would seem to add up to something. Uh, and if you're just sort of running the same plays over and over again without changing anything, uh, does that does that work for you? You know, do, does that seem like a good idea right. to you? And, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And, and, st- and you know, nothing about this, nothing about the the uh, the change circumstances here changes, you know, arithmetic, which is if you have mm-hmm. 
a dozen, a half dozen, uh, you know, credible candidates splitting up the anti-Trump vote. Um, and Trump holds on to this sort of implacable 30 to 35 percent uh, Republican, you know, base in the Republican Party. Aren't we just looking at another repeat of 2016? Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, and really, uh, you know, the rules uh, of some of these primaries where if you if you win, even if you win with 35 or 40 percent of the vote, uh, in some cases, not all, but in some cases you win all the delegates, um, yeah. and you're you're on your way to, uh, you know, the nomination and it, it, nothing uh, appreciably has changed about that uh, since 2020, since 2016, really. It's Thanksgiving week, uh, Zach. Uh, we've got a couple other things to watch. Uh, do not forget there is one unsettled uh, Senate race in Georgia. You know, Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent facing uh, Herschel Walker, the Republican challenger. Raphael Warnock, you might remember, ran ads during uh, the general election campaign uh, of him sitting at his Thanksgiving dinner table saying, vote for me. Or else you may, you know, if you don't, if you forget to vote for me, you may have to uh, spend your Thanksgiving with me and Herschel <laughs> on your television screens. Uh, unfortunately, that came to pass. It seems that, you know, we're already a week into a four week uh, sprint here. And there's already been some interesting developments, including this over the weekend, uh, a judge ruled in Warnock's favor in a lawsuit uh, challenging Georgia law and whether uh, counties could choose to open early voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. That had been in dispute. And the Secretary of State, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia, had basically taken the position that it was not allowed under any circumstances. Uh, this judge said otherwise. What, what do you think the impact of that could be, Zach? You know, I think we're going to, uh, again, <laughs> have to wait and see to some yeah. degree. But certainly, this whole process has played out in, in Warnock's favor in terms of wanting more more early voting. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the speculation so far on, on the Georgia race has been that, you know, now that there isn't a path for the Republican Party to have the majority in the Senate, that that'll dampen enthusiasm among Republican voters. So I, I feel that from Warnock's perspective, uh, you know, anything that they can do to just sort of continue to drive up uh, voters, uh, drive votes to turn out votes at this point in time is, is to their advantage. Um, but again, you know, we'll have to wait and see. And, you know, I'm sure that, I'm sure that December is obviously going to be here before we know it. So, uh, there isn't all that much time left in this race. Yep. December 6th. And, you know, it's interesting for the Democrats, you know, that the, they've already won the majority, but, you know, I think, I think they're sort of making the case that every vote counts in the Senate. You know, for, for Herschel Walker and Republicans, I mean, obviously, it's nice to be 50-50 instead of 51-49, but you have to imagine that there's been, it's going to be hard to motivate some of these some of these voters. I think there's already evidence that it's been hard to motivate donors to come in uh, when the majority is not at stake. So uh, that'll be interesting to watch as we move closer to this December 6th runoff. Um, it is Thanksgiving week, and of course, there is one hallowed political tradition uh, around the holiday, Zach. Tell us about mm -hmm. it. There's, of course, the pardoning of the turkeys, which will be happening later today. Uh, President Joe Biden is going to be pardoning two turkeys uh, from North Carolina. Uh, as of this recording, we do not yet know their names, but uh, we can only assume that in keeping with tradition, uh, they will have some good 
delightful, whimsical, you know, pairing name. You know, past years we've had a turkey named Tater and another turkey named Tot, or we've had Mac and Cheese, or Corn and Cob, or I believe last year was Peanut Butter and Jelly from uh, your home state of Indiana. Indeed. Jasper, Indiana. How about that? Um, do, do you have any guess as to what the pairing will be for 2022? For two, for two uh, North Carolina turkeys? I don't, uh, mm-hmm. that's a good, you know, um, Dean Smith and Mike Krzyzewski might be a little uh, long, <laughs> might be a little unwieldy, but. Uh, yeah, Krzyzewski is not really a good turkey yeah. name. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they'll come up with something good, uh, but Zach, uh, Zach Santon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe to the Playbook newsletter if you haven't already. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis. Thanks for listening.